Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Slow Burn Media and Evergreen Podcast presents Who Killed? A podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless. A suspect is in custody in connection with the stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students last month. Authorities sorted through thousands of tips and tracked Brian Koberger more than 2,000 miles away from the murder scene to his parents' home in Pennsylvania's Pocono Mountains. As Danya Backus reports, police are trying to determine a motive for the killings. What I can tell you is we have an individual in custody who committed these um, horrible crimes. After 19,000 tips in a quadruple murder case that drew nationwide attention. Detectives arrested 28-year-old Brian Christopher Koberger. Koberger was arrested at his parents' Pennsylvania home. The 28-year-old is a Ph.D. criminology student at Washington State University, just a 10-minute drive to the Idaho campus. Koberger is being held without bail and will spend the weekend in Pennsylvania. His extradition back to Idaho expected next week. The arrest caps nearly seven weeks of fear and frustration for families of the four murdered students. This is the first bit of joy that we've had in close to seven weeks. We hope that there's, they've, picking, they've picked the right guy and that gives us hope and we haven't had hope for a long time. Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Mojin, Zaina Carnodal, and Ethan Chapin all stabbed multiple times as they slept inside this house near the campus. Despite surveillance videos showing the victims in the hours before they were murdered, and despite thousands of tips pouring into the Moscow Police Department, there appeared, at least publicly, to be little movement on the case. No suspects, no arrest. As the grief mounted and many students left campus. Outside the house, the caution tape has finally come down. No arrest will ever bring back these young students. However, we do believe justice will be found through the criminal process. The district attorney who will eventually prosecute Kerberger once he's back in Idaho says an arrest does not mean an end to the investigation. They are still searching for tips from anyone who knows the suspect. We should know more after the extradition hearing Tuesday in Pennsylvania. For CBS Saturday Morning, Danya Backus, Moscow, Idaho. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Who Killed? I'm your host, Bill Huffman, and this is, of course, a Slow Burn Media, Evergreen Podcast, and Killer Podcast production. On this week's episode, we are finally going to take a look at the case in Idaho. And you know the case I'm talking about, and that would be the case of the Idaho Four. And these were the four victims that were tragically murdered on November 13th, uh, late at night, uh, by somebody wielding a fixed blade, according to authorities. Now, I did not want to do any episodes about this case where I speculated, and other shows have done it, and I have no problem with that whatsoever. I have a different approach. I wanted to be there when there was an arrest, and then I wanted to discuss what the next process would be in this investigation. So I waited until 
The arrest of Brian Koberger, which occurred last Friday, finally. Uh, but the police did an incredible job with their investigation and keeping things close to the vest. So I actually applaud them very much so. And I think the families that were critical of them also have turned to the page as far as what they believe was good police work. And this week, I was hoping to get somebody that I really respect. And I was able to do that. And that was with a guest named Matt Mangino. He's been on before. He is a former prosecuting attorney for Newcastle, Pennsylvania. And he has written a book about the death penalty that came out in 2010. Now, he's also a talking head on law and crime, which can be found on YouTube and Facebook. And he also does local interviews with the local NBC stations. And it is very interesting to hear his insight into what these processes are coming in this investigation. Now, we know that Brian has been extradited. We know that there have been some updates in the case. And before we even got off the air today, there was an update. So the update comes as we discussed in this episode about the release of the affidavit. And I'm guessing this is where some of this information came from. Now, it turns out that Brian Koberger had stalked the home of the victims at least 12 times, and that's according to cell phone data pings. And he apparently turned off his phone during the homicide. Now, that is something that one would do knowing how criminology works. Now, unfortunately, he also made one major mistake, and he actually left the sheath of, for the knife with his DNA on it next to one of the victims. So clearly not the brightest bulb in the class or the chandelier. Now, this is crazy, and <clears throat> definitely the things are breaking as we talk, and again, this is one of those cases where things are moving constantly. So now that we know a little bit more about what they knew about Brian and why they leaned on him, I think that will make for a little bit more understanding for the, I guess, listeners and for the people that were interested in this case to see how these investigators reached the conclusion that Brian Koberger was most likely their man. Now, again, this is all happening as I just recorded an episode on January 5th at 11.06 Mountain Time, and it is crazy to think that all these things are happening and we are finding out new information pretty much hourly now that he's back in Idaho and believe has been arraigned. So, this is, again, a breaking story, but join my conversation with Matt Mangino as we break down what the next steps are in the case against Brian Koberger and justice for the four victims in the Idaho slains. So join me as we break down this case and hear from an expert about what happens next. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of Who Killed? I am lucky enough to be joined again. This is his second appearance on Who Killed? And that is one Matthew Mangino, Matt Mangino. And he is a former uh, prosecutor from Newcastle, Pennsylvania. And he's also an author and an attorney and a talking head on television. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on this week's episode. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. 
it's, it's really great to be here. Unfortunately, we're here to discuss a topic that isn't so great, and that is the subject of the Idaho Four. Uh, what has your involvement been in this case? I noticed that you've been on, uh, you know, a lot of Facebook interviews. I've seen you on interviews on, uh, you know, NBC, local stations. You know, you've been pretty, pretty familiar with this case from the beginning. Can you give us a little bit of background on how you got involved and exactly what it is that you do? Well, you know, it is truly a horrific case, and it has captured the attention of America, uh, you know, certainly with the length of this investigation and, and kind of uh, the manner in which the, the Moscow police and Idaho authorities kind of played it close to the vest. So, we, so as, as, as a public, we really didn't know uh, what was going on, which led to a lot of speculation. You know, as a result, I, I got to do... Uh, you know, some commentary for uh, Law and Crime on this, the Law and Crime Network, and uh, a local uh, NBC affiliate that I that I do some um, expert analysis for, and and even some other uh, entities like Newsy and, and and other things. So it's really been, um, you know, you know, from purely the perspective of someone involved in the legal system, kind of a fascinating evolution uh, to this case. Certainly it's tragic. Uh, and, and as I said, it, it captured the attention of America and rightfully so, you know, four college students uh, brutally murdered and then really a, a period of time, um, you know, where we know nothing about what's going on in the case. Uh, so, so it, it has th this, this, you know, quick turnaround in the last week with regard to uh, the arrest, and then um, you know some of the bits and pieces that were being, that are being filled in. But again, we, we have to be careful because we don't know that, that that these necessarily sources and statements that we're hearing right now are accurate because we haven't seen the affidavit of probable cause, uh, which has been sealed by the court. And I would assume would be made available soon, uh, you know, once, uh, you know, Brian uh, Koberger is, is uh, arraigned in Idaho. Now, that's an interesting question that, uh, that brings up about the, uh, the I mean, they called it, you know, a gag order basically is a slang term for this type of uh, issue. But. Um, will we find out more through the release of this probable cause affidavit? I mean, do you think it will provide some sort of a map of what led them to Brian? Well, I think it would. Uh, you know, typically, um, you know, having been a prosecutor uh, for a couple of terms uh, in Western Pennsylvania and obviously uh, practicing criminal defense, uh, you know, oftentimes it was always my position as a prosecutor that I wanted to put the minimum amount of information that I could in an affidavit of probable cause. I wanted just to give enough information that would carry the day in terms of getting a warrant for arrest. I don't want to, I don't want to lay my whole case out in a 10 page affidavit of probable cause. Now, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what the authorities, uh, in Idaho, um, you know, have done in this case. This is this is a little different. Certainly, um, you know, they're they're kind of finding a needle in the haystack, uh, and and uh, they may want to provide 
uh, more information than normal to, sh to show how they've been able to find, uh, you know, uh, Brian Kohlberger in, in this situation. So I think the affidavit of probable cause will provide us with additional information, may fill in some of these blanks, may fill in some of what we've heard from sources, so to speak, uh, in the last few days. Um, you know, so, so I think it's going to certainly give us more than we know right now, but it may not be the complete picture that, that some expect. Well, I think that would be foolish on the part of the prosecutors to, to release the, you know, like, like you said, you don't want to put too much information in there, lay out your case and let it be picked apart, uh, before there is even, you know, a trial or a grand jury or anything along those lines. I, I find, uh, keeping the things close to the vest in this case was the best thing they could have possibly done. I know they took a lot of flack from, you know, the, one of the parents and, you know, he even came out and said after the arrest, he's like, well, they didn't tell us anything about this guy and they did a hell of a job at keeping it, you know, quiet because apparently they knew of this individual, prior to, I mean prior to when he left and he left on December 15th and then he wasn't arrested again until or he wasn't arrested until the what the 30th the or 30th, late right. on the yeah late early morning on the 30th and so they were following this guy for a while and man good police work you know it takes time and for them to be able to surveil this individual i mean is this kind of an unprecedented thing does this typically do they typically spend two weeks surveilling somebody i mean they had an indiana police officer intentionally pull him over f from a source mm -hmm. um right. of course you know don't want to speculate too much but it's pretty that's a pretty impressive um feat in my opinion well, it is, uh, you know, it is impressive in terms of the manner in which they were able to keep all this information confidential. Um, you know, if I were a defense attorney, um, you know, I would be uh, a bit sort, sort of um, anticipating, uh, you know, what additional information they found in this two-week period. Certainly, it is um, unprecedented, uh, so to speak, but... Why did they have to do it? Uh, you know, why didn't they think two weeks ago or three weeks now before uh, Coneberger uh, ever left Idaho that they didn't have enough to just grab him and arrest him there? You know, I look at a case like this that if you're trying to build more evidence and surveil somebody for two weeks, you might feel like you need more. Um, you might not feel comfortable that what you have right now is adequate in terms of probable cause or in the long run in terms of getting a conviction uh, beyond a reasonable doubt. So, uh, you know, from having my defense hat on, I want to I want to look at this. I want to know, hey, were you on shore on, on January 13th or Jan I mean, uh, December 13th or, th or December 15th before before him and his father left Idaho, that you wanted to continue this investigation and this surveillance. So, so you know, it's a double-edged sword, and, and, and we'll see how all that sorts out. 
Yeah, you know, that is very, it's a very good point. And I think from the defense perspective, you would think that, okay, it took you two weeks of surveillance to get the evidence you needed to support this probable cause affidavit, then, you know, there may, you know, there's, there might be some holes there. And it, it is interesting to think that um, they were able to do this with the help of the FBI, uh, other law enforcement, and they were able to do this kind of on the sly. And, you know, if Brian was so smart, you know, he might be suspicious of this, you know, like if somebody's tailing you or something like that, you kind of pick up on it. I guess they just, I don't know when you do something like this and you have somebody who is suspected of such a horrible crime that has literally paralyzed a community. Um, and to know about it for two weeks before you made the arrest. I don't know. Like I just, I do, I see where you're coming from with the defense perspective because it's like, well, what took so long? Mm hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it, it does make you pause and think, you know, what additional evidence did they think they were going to discover, you know, through surveillance? Um, you know, sometimes, you know, there are, you know, people who, who commit crimes, and it could be anything from, you know, uh, a robbery to an arson to a homicide, you know, like to return to the scene of the crime. They like to, to, to go back and, and just look at the flurry of police cars and forensic analysts and things like that. So maybe, maybe you're seeing if there's anything like that, um, that occurred, uh, you know, maybe you watch to see if someone flees, not, not, you know, so, so when someone, when someone flees, you know, it can be indicative of, uh, of guilt that, that, that they're acknowledging their guilt and, and they fled. Now, in a situation like this, I don't think that you're going to be able to say that his returning to Pennsylvania was necessarily him fleeing. Uh, he waited for a period of time. He finished the, the semester. Uh, he waited month. for his he waited father. Whole month. Who, yeah, for, uh, he waited for his father, who, I, as I understand again from sources, that he had made plans early in the year that he would fly out and drive back with him. So this is not an indication of flight. Um, that we typically might see in a situation where, where someone scrambles after a crime and, and, and uh, can't be located. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's going to be interesting to see exactly, you know, what the uh, authorities in Idaho learned after he became a target of their investigation. Yeah, I mean, the, I guess the most important thing to remember is the victims in this case. And, you know, that, that's really um, the victims and the families and the friends and the community that all really, I mean, wow. Like, talk about being impacted by an awful tragedy, a city that doesn't have murders. Um, and then you have this individual. Now, they sources against the sources. And I hate relying too much on this because we don't know exactly what they mean. And they say that he lived within a few minutes of the this home. But that doesn't really say much other than, you know, like, did he, like, live down the street? You know, a few minutes could be anything. 
I mean, I'm a few minutes away from a thousand people. So like, I, I don't know what to take from that. And I, I guess in my opinion, the thing that they got him on, or at least that they narrowed the search down to him, clearly the DNA is what I think helped put this warrant into place. But the car, I mean, the car, I mean, there's only so many cars, Hyundai Elantras, white Hyundai Elantras, more surprisingly, more than I thought, 90 of them were registered to park on the campus of the University of Idaho. Apparently, that's a very popular yeah. car there. Um, right. But, like, you think about this individual, and, you know, if they figured out it was his car, and then they start looking at his background, I mean, red flags galore, right? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, again, you know, we're, we're dealing with sources and, and, and we hear about um, this uh, genetic genealogy uh, that was used. Uh, so, so, you know, you find uh, DNA, whether it be blood or other uh, type of DNA in the house that doesn't belong to any of the victims. Um, you, you get that DNA, you run it through CODIS. If the defendant's never been arrested or involved in the, the legal system, you're not going to have a match. And, and, and it appears, again, from sources that they immediately turned to genetic uh, genealogy, which then uh, could connect this DNA with uh, certain family members. And then you start this to draw out this family tree of all possibilities. And then here you find someone nearby uh, at, at Washington uh, State University and then you then you continue to connect the dots, and he's driving a white Elantra, which is something that you saw on video uh, surveillance. So, so it, you know, you see how that comes together. If in fact that's the way it came together, and again, we may know more about that once this affidavit of probable cause is made public. But you could see uh, that that would be really, uh, you know, good police work. Uh, you know, very timely, it, you know, it's, un, it's unusual in, in, in sort of a real-time case to use this genetic genealogy. Where, where we have seen it repeatedly is in cold cases uh, where you're able to, to connect the dots, you know, maybe years in, after uh, a crime. Uh, but here you're using it real-time and, uh, and it's kind of impressive uh, if that's the way it was done. Yeah, I think it's extremely uh, impressive, and I think it's a step in a direction that I think all law enforcement probably is excited about because if you can use this in real time like they supposedly have, I think that changes a lot of investigations and the way that they can approach this kind of stuff, especially if there's an abundance of DNA that they can use to test. And I think that that stems from... now. Of course, the reports have always been that it was a, a blade that committed this crime. You know, obviously the individual wielding the blade. But, you know, as a criminology student, you would think this guy would have thought about what he was going to do before he did it. And the fact that he used a knife, which is traditionally known to cause DNA to be left at a scene. I mean... This really wasn't that well thought out if that was, you know, if that if it was thought out at all. I don't know because we don't know yet. Well, right. So, so it's, it's going to be 
uh, you know, something um, that people are going to analyze, people like you and I are going to talk about. Uh, you know, so, so he goes into a house, uh, you know, with this blade. And, you know, so, so what's his intention there? I mean, does he know these people? Is this, is this uh, a, a group of people that he's been uh, stalking or following for whatever reason that might be? You know, is this a random um you know, act, you see a couple of these uh, young women, the victims outside, uh, you know, getting a sandwich uh, at one of the vendors and you follow them home. Um, it, you know, if you think about it, though, if you're going to plan something like this, a massacre like this, uh, and, and it's four people that you in, intend to basically ambush uh, while they're in bed, uh, you're not going to use a gun. Uh, because that's probably, you know, when you, when you shoot one of the victims, you're going to alert the others in, in the place that, that fair, fair know, point. something's amiss. Uh, and then you, you have, you have to confront these people. So, uh, if you're, if you're, if you're going to kill them in their sleep, uh, you're going to do it with a means that is not going to, to make a lot of noise. So I, so I see using, um, a blade or a knife is, is the way you want to go in that situation. Um, you know, here, uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, uh, four people were, were massacred, but two, uh, were left unharmed. Uh, was this, was this incident interrupted in some way? Was there something that, that caused, uh, the perpetrator to, to leave quickly? Um, the DNA that was found at the crime scene, um, that, that has allegedly uh, been traced uh, to the defendant. And as I understand, again, you know, through sources, um, they were able to get some sort of discarded uh, containers or, or a glass uh, or a coffee cup that the, um, the defendant used and were able to match the DNA found within the residence to him specifically as the investigation uh, continued and this is kind of a you know secret agent kind of spying work you know you you go into a restaurant and or go through the garbage and and and, and find a cup or glass or or something that has his uh dna on it but you know what kind of dna was it that was discovered there was it was it actually blood was it was it touch dna uh i i think one of the things that that um people are going to want to know and, and investigators are ultimately going to have to divulge is was there some contact between uh, the defendant and one or more of the victims? Okay. So, so was there, there was there a reason why, um, you know, the, 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 is there a motive, you know, is, is this random or, or, or is there a motive? Was there, was there something uh, between the victims and this defendant? Um, you know, so, so there's a lot of questions that, that we still don't know, uh, that will give us a clearer picture of why, you know, such a heinous, um, you know, massacre would occur. Why these four would, would look to be, uh, happy and successful students, uh, were slaughtered. Yeah. These, these four students, um, you know, Ethan and, uh, 
you know, Madison, uh, gosh, I mean, they were really, I mean, you had Kaylee, Ethan, and it's it Zana. I don't want to, I don't want to pronounce it right, incorrectly. Yeah. And it's just, these were young, bright individuals who had careers lined up. I mean, I believe it was Kaylee that was going to be starting her career in the spring. And it's just so tragic to think that they were just on the precipice of their lives beginning, you know, college is sort of the, uh, stepping stone to the next step in your life, which is, you know, obviously that's you know, part of people, you know, going to college and all that. But to know that the, these people had lives, families, friends, brothers, I mean, one was a, tri a triplet and, you know, that's just tragic. He has to live with that. The rest of his, his brothers have to live with that the rest of his life. And it makes you wonder whether or not it was something that he had targeted because these two individuals that were not attacked, if he had been, say, stalking the house, he would have known that there were two other people that were roommates, at least. I don't know if he would have known that they were there that night because they were not in, you know, they were in another part of the house. But, you know, again, if he was killing four, well, like, what, what's, not, what's the other two? I don't know. <coughs> I mean, do you feel like that's a sort of a sign that this was a targeted attack? Because they keep saying it's a targeted attack. Well, I think, you know, one of the things that, that, that we'll all do is, you know, try to figure out why something like this happened or how could something like this happen. And unfortunately, we're never going to really know the answer to that question. You know, why would, um, you know, someone who allegedly, um, you know, a, a Ph.D. candidate want uh, to go into a house and, and slaughter these uh, four vibrant young people who, as you said, were on their way to, to starting uh, their life and their careers. Uh, you know, I don't think we're ever going to be able to make sense out of that. Uh, you know, we can figure out maybe what a motive was. Uh, we can figure out the means by which it was carried out. Uh, we can figure out how someone was able to escape that house after after massacring these students, but we're never really going to know why, why something like this happens. And it's, 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 uh, just a complete tragedy, uh, that is as much as we try, we're never really going to make any sense out of it. Yeah, you're, you're correct in that regard. Do you find it interesting at all or uh, a connection that he was studying under like one of the most famed criminologists and uh, serial killer experts in the country? I mean, is there any thought that this could have been just like testing his knowledge? I know that sounds just absolutely asinine, but, you know, we've seen crazy things happen before. So, yeah. Well, you know, that's, that's, you know, an excellent point. Um, you know, certainly he's, he was studying in the field of, of criminal, uh, conduct and, and, um, he, he was, you know, he studied under, um, a, um, 
female professor uh, in Pennsylvania who, who is renowned for uh, her study of, of serial killers. Um, you know, that, that, that's an, an excellent question. And, and not only, you know, have we saw this sort of stuff in real life, uh, but, you know, there, there have been great, um, um, you know, movies and, and, and books about, you know, sort of the, the criminal mind, uh, you know, you know, a famous movie is Alfred Hitchcock's The Rope, where, where, you know, there's two friends who decide to kill another friend just for the thrill of killing. And, and, uh, you know, I, I was involved as a prosecutor in a case, uh, you know, where a 12 year old girl, uh, was murdered by uh, three, you know, uh, men in their late teens, early twenties, who who basically said it was a thrill kill. You know, something they talked about doing, something about they talked about, you know, murdering somebody, and and then ultimately murdered this twelve-year-old girl. So so there are, uh, you know, in real life and in in fiction and literature countless situations where people have just um, killed for the thrill of killing. I mean, it, it brings back Leopold and Loeb, um, you know, one of the first major murder cases of any, you know, teenagers in this country. Right. You know, those were kids that were think that thought they were smarter than everybody else, and they wanted to pull off a murder, but they were not the smartest kids in the class either because they picked somebody that they knew and you know it's like these people who do these crimes and yes they make movies about them because they do happen in real life and it it is crazy to think i mean the golden state killer had a criminology degree uh btk had a criminology degree um you know People interested in this field study that stuff. I mean, again, if if anybody looked at either of our, uh, sir, you know, uh, searches or web services, uh, mm -hmm. they'd probably think, oh man, they're pretty shady too. But right. on a different side of things, you know, we're investigating stuff, not <laughs> so much uh, investigating how to commit crime. But that, to me, was something that stood out big time when I found out he was a criminology professor. And they're not a professor, uh, criminology student, PhD student, nonetheless. Um, gosh, it really made me think about what his motives were getting into that field. Can't, can't help right. it. Right. I mean, it, yeah, it, it's just, uh, you know, another uh, plot twist, so to speak, uh, in this case that, that really adds to this sort of... Um, frenzy about you know gaining more information and finding more out about this defendant and finding more out uh, about the case and 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 i think that's what you know fuels this um this interest um because there are so many uh dimensions to it that uh, still have to reveal themselves yeah i think and i think the fact that it happened in a sleepy quiet you know college town you know, Moscow, Idaho, I live out west, and, you know, that's up there in the peninsula of Idaho, and it's right. a gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous part of this country, and to think that these people who barely ever lock their doors now lock their doors 
at night mm. because well hopefully there's a little bit of peace but now they're st- they're, they're scarred for life because of this and so that will probably change their routines forever and for the students that had to experience this this will stick with them for the rest of their lives as well and so i'm just hoping that this arrest and what will be following this arrest will provide you know it's not so much about us i don't care i mean Again, I never cared that they kept things close to the vest. That was the whole point of the investigation. You don't tell people what they're doing. You don't go to the media and say, this is what we have, and we hope you guys help us. You know, that's magical thinking. And if you think that that's how the investigators go about their business, then reassess yourself and change the the channel, (laughs) whatever you're watching. It's not correct. But the fact that they can do this stuff and... Uh, you know, keep the parents at bay while they're kind of pursuing this one individual. I have to give just the the police just a ton of credit for not being one of a police service or a police department that is used to this crime. And they called in the state police right away, which was super smart. I mean, is that, do you think that was a really smart move on their part? Well, yeah, I do. Um, you know, there are many uh, communities across the country uh, that have, uh, you know, relatively small police departments. Uh, you know, people would be surprised to know in, in, in Pennsylvania, I mean, we literally have hundreds of police departments that might have, you know, one full-time and three part-time police officers. Um, those, those police departments are, are just not um, capable of handling uh, a homicide investigation, something, especially something of this magnitude. Now, this police department was certain, certainly larger uh, than that. You had a college campus there. There's, there, there's a lot more activity. But again, I think it, it was uh, prudent to, to seek as much help as you could, uh, especially when they, when they you know, realized the magnitude uh, of this case. And, and then, you know, not only that, they're, they're, they were assisted by the, the FBI. Uh, the FBI, again, as uh, sources have said, were, were basically heading up the surveillance, you know, from Idaho uh, to Pennsylvania. You know, we, we learn, uh, again, from sources that, that they asked for uh, the vehicle to be pulled over by uh, local police in Indiana. Um, you know, I, I ultimately, I think that's something that will be closely scrutinized in this case, especially if there's anything that they, they plan to use from those stops. That they, they are pretextual stops, um, you know, one for following too closely, one for speeding. I certainly would want to scrutinize both of those situations if, if I was defending this case, especially, obviously, if they were going to try to use something from those stops, either something that was said or, you know, um, you know, something that was captured on their, their body cam, you know, wounds on the hand or something like that. Um, you know, that, that, I think that will get some, some real scrutiny. That's really, that's interesting. And I, I love that you have that defense, defensive, you know, defense attorney's perspective because you're right. Uh, those are pretextual stops, which are technically not allowed to occur, so those evidence, the evidence in those cases, 
in your opinion, you could fight that? Well, I would certainly look at it. I mean, you know, unfortunately, you know, a pretextual stop. I mean, so, so let's say, you know, a police officer uh, suspects that something is awry uh, and, and there, there's, there's people in a car. They, they can follow that car until they do something wrong. They fail to use a turn signal, whatever the case may be, and they pull them over. And that's a pretextual stop. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, the courts have said, yeah, you can do that. This, at least again, based on the sources, is a little different. You're in a, you're, you're in a patrol car and the FBI contacts you and says, pull this car over. Okay. Um, so now you're on the highway trying to find a, a reason to pull this car over. Uh, you know, I'd, I, first thing I'd want to look at is how often the Pennsylvania or the Indiana State Police pull people over for following too closely, uh, you know, on, on the interstate highway. Uh, speeding's a different thing. But how, how did you determine that speeding? Did you, did you use radar? Was, was, the, was the, the car going three miles over the speed limit, which you rarely ever see? Or was it going 15 miles over the speed limit? Um, you know, so, so those are the kind of things that I would want to know. Again, only if they were attempting to use something that was captured on video or something that was said by either one. If they don't plan to use any of that, then it doesn't matter. Uh, but if they do, I think those kind of things are going to be closely, closely scrutinized. Yeah, it's definitely an interesting uh, again, another interesting plot point in this uh, whole investigation. And when you have, you know, the FBI dictating to Indiana state police officers, I can, you know, driven, having driven across Indiana many times, and I'm sure you have as well, you know, you rarely see a lot of police officers. And, you know, that can go all the way to Colorado, where I am. I mean, I've been through Iowa before and never even seen a cop. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> it's very possible. You know, it, it it happens, and so I do see that your um, perspective on that uh, part of the case is certainly uh, warranted and certainly interesting too, because it does seem like an unusual move, but something like you would see in a movie more so than you would see in real life. I mean, we've all seen right. the digging through garbage and that kind of stuff. But this just such seems like a big operation that involved more than just one department, more than one law enforcement agency. This is really impressive police work, in my opinion. Uh, with that being said, from the defense perspective, um, what would you be looking for in these next few days as far as what you're like when they do bring your client in or Brian, this, this client in, you know, obviously he's not your client, but if he was your client, when they bring him in, do they give you all the information that they've had up to that point? I mean, how much disclosure do they give you? Well, I would think, uh, initially, um, when he is um, arraigned, a preliminary arraignment. So this this would be sort of the first step uh, in, in the court process. Uh, he, he's going to come to court. Uh, they're going to tell him what the charges are. Uh, they're going to 
tell him that he has the right to counsel, which I think there's already a, a, uh, a woman, um, uh, Ann, I think is her name, Ann Taylor. Um, she's an experienced criminal defense attorney, a, a, a um, public defender. I believe she's already asked the police uh, to have her investigators uh, look at the house, go into the interior of the apartment, the exterior, and things like that. So she's already uh, hit the ground running. Uh, but I think at the initially, if it's anything like Pennsylvania, the jurisdiction that I practice, and all you're going to get at that first uh, uh, preliminary arraignment is a copy of the criminal complaint, which has already been made public, and then this affidavit of probable cause. And really, that's all that you're entitled to uh, until you have a probable cause hearing in this case. Okay. And even then, you're not going to be provided with additional information. Uh, occasionally, you know, a police officer might read from a report, and then you can say, well, listen, I, if, he, if he's going to read from the report, then I want a copy of the report. But oftentimes, you know, the police officers will really you just, just use that affidavit of probable cause uh, because that's all you really need. The burden at that early stage of a, of, of a criminal prosecution is very low. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. So again, as I said earlier, if I'm prosecuting this case, I'm putting the least amount of evidence that I can in front of uh, the judge or magistrate, whatever it might, however that's handled in Idaho, and, uh, and, and getting this case bound to trial. Then what happens is the discovery process begins. Okay. And, you know, formally, you, you know, defense counsel requests uh, discovery and maybe some specific discovery if there's, if there are reports, if there are interviews, if there are taped interviews, uh, audio interviews, whatever it might be, then you, then you begin to accumulate all that information in, in preparation for trial. And, and normally, there's a, a specific time limit within which um, discovery is provided, and then defense counsel has to file pre-trial motions. So if you're going to challenge the evidence, if you're going to challenge the stops along the road to Indiana, if you're going to challenge uh, any statement that he might have made while he was in the custody uh, of the Pennsylvania authorities, you know, everything... To give you an example, in Pennsylvania, what we refer to it as an omnibus pretrial motion, which means everything you're going to raise, you got to raise it in that omnibus motion. So if you want to change a venue, it, it, you know all those things that that, that might come up, if, you know suppression issues, uh, all those all those issues are put into that single motion, and then you begin to go through uh, the pretrial hearings. You know, so so you know. I would assume, you know, if there's going to be a zealous defense in this case, and there's no reason not to think so, defense counsel's already gone out to look at the house and, and other places and has a team of investigators together, that this this process is going to is not going to move quickly. Yeah, and so that I I really want to know the ins and outs a little bit about this this public defender. Now she's renowned for being uh i guess a high quality public defender she's i think uh gotten somebody else exonerated uh for murder how does that go about how does how does this individual go about acquiring her services if she's a public defender i mean do you get a choice in this matter i mean how does that work i really don't know yeah so 
again, I, I can't speak specifically for Idaho because every state is different in terms of how they go about, um, you know, making that decision of, you know, who's going to represent who. Uh, you know, for instance, again, in Pennsylvania, uh, we're the only state in, in the country that does not provide state funding for public defenders. So every individual county in Pennsylvania, there's 67 of them, they, each county has to pay all of the public defender costs. So if you can imagine uh, in a small county in Pennsylvania uh, where, where, where a you know, high profile crime occurs, it could wipe the whole county out. After you think about, uh, you know, criminal defense and investigators and experts and all the things that go into defending a case, because you can't say, oh, we're not going to give you the money to do that. I mean, you have to be able to present the best possible defense possible. And, and you know, it could cost literally hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. And in a small county, that could be devastating. So, you know, I know that Idaho is, is different. I'm sure they get some state funding, whatever, however that works, local state. But, but the process is, if, if he's a student, so he's not working, he doesn't have income. So he's going to be eligible for a public defender. He's going to be eligible for f free legal representation. You know, that's a fundamental issue. Uh, you know, in the United States, the, the Supreme Court has said uh, that, that, you know, if you can't afford an attorney, an attorney will be appointed to represent you, especially in, 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 a, in a capital, potentially capital case like this. So how does that happen? I don't know if the, if the court appoints that person a lot of times in, in, in counties as well is you might have a public defender's office so you might have 10 attorneys in there and each of those attorneys are handling hundreds of cases literally all of a sudden you have this huge high profile case it would it would it would overwhelm the public defender's office so instead of taking a public defender out of that office and appointing them as counsel you might have a mechanism where independent counsel is appointed to represent this person. Again, paid by the county or the state, they're a public defender, but they're independent of the public defender's office because the case of this magnitude could overwhelm the public defender's office. Again, I'm just speaking on experience from my own uh, jurisdiction, uh, but I would think that it's a similar process in Idaho. That is a very in, insightful uh, perspective because, again, I didn't realize that when the counties had to pay for it, I did assume that the state would be the one to foot the bill. Uh, now, I know that other states, you know, like like you mentioned, they'll put an independent council in there. That, you know, that makes sense, uh, especially if you need somebody that's going to be, you know, a top-notch, uh, you know, investigator lawyer uh, right. with all the bells and, and whistles. Right. And one of the other things that, to consider in, in a lot of states, in order to say this case ultimately turns into a death penalty case, uh, in order to to um, represent somebody uh, as a, a, you know, a, a defendant who's charged with a capital crime, you have to have certain specific training. Um, so not every lawyer can try a capital case. You have to be sort of be uh, qualified uh, to represent somebody in the capital case. Now, 
a lot of public defender's offices may only have one or two attorneys that are qualified to handle death penalty cases. Uh, you know, so, so it limits the, the, the amount of um, available choices for those representing somebody uh, in a capital case. Yeah, and you know, we talked about this before we came on uh, the air, and that was about uh, how often, and or I should say how little they use the death penalty in both Pennsylvania and Idaho. And what are the chances that this does become you know, a capital murder case where, you know, the death penalty is definitely on the table. And um, do you see it going that way? Well, you know, in order for the prosecution to pursue a death penalty, um, they there has to be what are called aggravating circumstances. Okay. So beyond someone just committing first degree murder, okay, you have to have certain aggravating uh, factors. So, so to give you an example, some of those aggravating factors might be the age of the victim, uh, you know, whether or not this person has prior uh, felonies, uh, you know, whether or not, um, um, you know, th this crime was committed in the course of committing another felony. So there's a lot of aggravating factors. And that might be, you know, if you notice the charges, there's four ho uh, homicide charges, and then there's a burglary uh, with the intent to, you know, commit serious bodily injury or something, you know, that might be there just to add that aggravating factor that's needed for purposes of the death penalty. So, so there's a lot of, um, a lot of, um, aggravating factors. So, so once the, the, the prosecution determines, well, we have, uh, a charge of first degree murder and we have these aggravating circumstances, then they put the defendant on notice that they're going to seek the death penalty. Okay. And that's required. And the interesting thing about Idaho is, you know, the death penalty has been around, you know, since uh, 1976, the modern uh, death penalty, because, um, you know, death penalty was struck down in 1972. It was back in 1976. And, um, since that time, they've only executed three people in Idaho. Um, I think the last one was in 2012. They only have eight people on death row. Um, so the, the question is, if you seek the death penalty, what's the likelihood that it's ever going to be carried out in Idaho? Uh, and certainly when you just look, just look at the facts and nothing else, you know, the, the, the heinous, uh, ambush and slaughter of these four students you would think hey this case cries out for the death penalty um, but there are so many other factors that are involved in, in the process and and you know there's other considerations you know would, would would this person plea for life without parole at least then you have some closure and, and you don't take the risk of, of trying this case um, so there's a lot of a lot of things that are looked at and considered uh, in a capital case. Yeah, I didn't realize how many things have to go into play to get a death penalty on the table regarding these aggravating circumstances, just because you look at the crime from the forefront, and of course it's horrific. And so I think any layman is going to think, well, of course this is a, def de you know, a death penalty case. But like you said, there are other things that go into play and 
things that can make it not a death penalty case and whether or not the death penalty is even worth pursuing if it's not even something that's being used because doesn't that just create more of a headache for one, the public, you know, defense or public, uh, I should say just the whole, the whole system gets thrown into whack and costs a lot of freaking money, you know, with all the appeals and all the things that go into, uh, you know, somebody who's on death row. Um, do you think that that would be a problem? Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's there's no question um, that there are, there's a lot of cost uh, involved because uh, when someone's sentenced to death, there's really sort of like an end endless series of of appeals. Uh, you know, first you might be appealing, you know, the 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 actual conviction, and then you're appealing uh, the sentence, and then then you're appealing the method of execution, and then you're appealing that uh, you have some mental defect that prevents you from being executed. So, so, so those execution, those appeals uh, and petitions to the court uh, are, are, are endless, certainly, when it, when it comes to the death penalty. Uh, and and um, the other thing is, with regard to the death penalty, is the, the anguish for the family of the victims. So, so you have someone who's sentenced to death, and... You know, repeatedly you endure these delays in these filings, and you know, then you have then you have executions scheduled, and then and then delayed. Uh, you know, so there's so many factors, um, and and literally the time between conviction and actually having an execution carried out is probably more than twenty years right now, on average. Okay. And, and then when you, you know, when you mix in those situations in which defendants have just given up their appeal rights and said, uh, you know, execute me, I'm done. I ain't. In fact, in Pennsylvania, we've only had three executions since 1976, just like Idaho. But the three people who have been executed in Pennsylvania were all voluntarily executed. They gave up their appeal rights and, and asked to be executed. So, so Pennsylvania has had the death penalty on the books for you know 150 years or whatever the, the case may be there hasn't been an involuntary execution in pennsylvania since 1962 so we have 140 people on death row but we haven't involuntarily executed anybody in 60 years i mean so you start to think about what's the sense of the death penalty and so you have you have all these people on death row you have all these family members of victims who keep wondering when it, when is the, the the killer of my daughter or my father or my uh my brother when are they going to be executed so 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 it really it really creates a lot of anguish for families of victims as well you know that's another way of looking at it that i hadn't thought of because you are so right those appeals those sentences you know where they actually have something set where they're going to be executed and then there's a last minute delay the emotions that these families must go through has got to be excruciating and yeah they're probably feeling a lot of the same feelings they felt when the crime was committed in the first place and do we really i mean obviously i don't have any say in this but 
is it worth it to put the families through that type of tragedy over and over again, especially when there is proven uh, evidence that they don't really use the death penalty? My question well, next. Know, and, and, okay, sorry. You know, and, and as you know, we, we've talked about it before. You know, I've um, I wrote a book on the death penalty. Um, yes, the executioner's yes, toll. Yeah, 2010. And, and what I did in that book is I kind of examined uh, all the executions in a single year because, you know, most of the time people who write about the death penalty write from a certain bias. They're for it or against it. And I thought, you know, what might be an interesting way to look at this is just let's look at every case. Let's look at the facts. Let's look at uh, the, the investigations, the trials. Uh, you know, right up to the right through the appeals up to the last mills and the in the last words, and, and you know, try to do it from an unbiased uh, perspective and let the reader decide whether or not they support the death penalty. One of the things that struck me in that book is how many uh, families uh, of victims don't want the death penalty or, or are opposed to execution. Uh, Again, in what what you hear is you know I don't I, you know justice has been done. He'll spend his life in prison. He can't hurt anybody else. And I can have some closure. I can put this behind me uh, as best that I can. If I have to, if I have to go through executions being scheduled and postponed and appeals last minute appeals stopping execution, I relive you know my family member, my loved ones murder over and over and over again. So so there, there are people who acknowledge that that's not something that they want to endure, uh, but, you know, they're, they're in the midst of that right now and dealing with it. Yeah, that book that you wrote, that is an incredible book. And I think anybody who's interested in the death penalty or the, you know, ethics and the you know, the mechanisms that go into that would be service, well serviced by picking up that book. And, uh, you know, I'm assuming that book is available at, on Amazon and wherever you get your, you know, right. Your yeah. Books. Amazon, you know, Barnes and Noble, uh, all, all the places you regularly find a book. So, yeah. And you, you, we've you. talked about that before, you know, that was the original conversation that we had was about your book. And, and I was so intrigued after we met at CrimeCon about that, aspect of criminal uh, defense, criminal prosecution, because it impacts you too as a prosecuting attorney. You have to make these decisions, and then you are kind of stuck with what you've let the jury come up with, and whether or not you feel good about it is not really your choice anymore. So I see where you're coming from when it comes down to, is this worth pursuing at the end of the day? Because really yeah it doesn't happen all that often and the appeals are just so oh, just it's just rehashing everything every every opportunity that they would have to make an appeal they would take it as they have the right to do but for the families i don't feel that that is a fair way of of going about it but it is fair for the person yeah, and, and the thing that's interesting about it is that um you know the death penalty is the most important decision that has to be made in the criminal justice system. I mean, so you're deciding whether or not ultimately this person is going to have to uh, 
give up their life for the crime that they commit. I mean, what, what, what more important decision can there be, life or death? Yet, you know, there's no really standard method in this country for determining whether or not a prosecutor will seek the death penalty. So, you know, in Pennsylvania, for instance, and in, and in most states, if not all, there's no process that says, well, you'll consider this when you're thinking about the death penalty, or, you know, you'll, you'll use this formula, or there are no guidelines. So the federal government has some, uh, you know, process where a U.S. attorney would have to get the approval of the United States uh, Attorney General to seek the death penalty. But there isn't anything like that in states. It's not like you have to go to the Attorney General of Pennsylvania or Idaho and say, can I seek the death penalty in this case? No, it's completely up to the elected or in some states appointed prosecutor if, they, if that state has a death penalty they decide without any real guidelines or structure whether or not they're going to pursue the death penalty. That's a little flingy, floppy, whatever you want to call it. I don't know. That just seems yeah. a little, you know, there should be a little bit more of a roadmap on how to get to this decision because this is a lot of pressure that you put on the jurors and you put on the prosecuting attorney. Mm -hmm. And again, without a roadmap, it's really unfair. Now, I know you've got to get going. Is there anything that you have uh, not said about the Idaho case that uh, you feel is uh, is hanging out there still? Well, no, I mean, I, I anticipate that that, that that affidavit of probable cause will, will be released shortly. Um, and, you know, we're going to have a better picture uh, of what was involved in this investigation and a better picture of what evidence um, that they have and, and they will use to pursue a conviction in this case. You know, uh, it, it's always interesting, you know, when you're determining whether to charge somebody as a prosecutor. Uh, it, it's not, you know, the, the question is, isn't, you know, do I have enough evidence uh, for probable cause? Do I have enough evidence to get this case uh, sent to court? I think uh, ethically as a prosecutor, you have to look at every case from the outset and say, do I have enough evidence to prove this defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? That's the threshold for a prosecutor. Not can I get this case bound to court, not can I get a warrant for this guy's arrest, but can I prove beyond a reasonable doubt uh, that he's guilty? And I, and I think we're, we're going to learn more about that shortly. Yeah, I do, I do believe that we will find out more and it probably will come the within 24 hours of this episode going on the air. So uh, hopefully we will find out more. Now, Matt, where would uh, people be able to find you? I know you're uh, active on Twitter and um, mm -hmm. give us uh, some of your pluggables. Yeah, so so yeah, I'm, I'm on uh, Twitter uh, and, and it's, uh, you know, at Matthew T. Mangino. And, um, you know, my blog is uh, mattmangino.com. And I, and I write and post every day uh, about uh, issues um, that, uh, you know, I think are important or people would be interested in. And, and uh, even if you wanted to email me, uh, you can. Uh, the, my firm is Luxembourg, Garbett, Kelly, and George, which is in Newcastle. And my email is mmangino, so M-M-A-N-G-I-N-O, at L-G-K-G. Luxembourg, Garbage, Kelly, and George, lgkg.com. 
awesome. I really think uh, you yeah. bring a great, uh, you know, I said perspective a million times in this episode, but it's so true because you see both sides of the field. And I think that is very important for the listeners and kind of the nuts and bolts of this whole case, really, because yeah. we aren't professionals as, as podcasters. And there's a lot of people out there that are making claims that are doing things that are beyond the realm of what they should be doing. And it's important that I had somebody on that is as qualified as you to discuss this case. And I was waiting for uh, the opportunity once somebody was arrested before I put my two cents in. Because, again, it's not... Yeah. It, it doesn't involve me. It's it's about the investigation and getting the conviction. That's the most important thing. And um, Matt, I cannot thank you enough for coming on today. Oh, thanks so much. Uh, it, it's always uh, great to talk with you. Uh, you have a great uh, uh, program, a great podcast uh, that I follow religiously. So uh, it's it's an honor to to be on with you today well thank you and i and if there is anything that comes up is it okay that uh i reach out and maybe come back on again and uh you know discuss possible uh yeah you know what what's the next steps are going to be once once we know more please do i'd love i'd love to come back awesome many thanks to matt mangino for taking time out of his wild and crazy schedule to join me on who killed to discuss the case of the idaho four and the case against brian koberger so let's hope that with this investigation coming somewhat to a head for the time being uh, let's not forget about the victims and that was kaylee gonclaves and xana uh, Carnoodle and Ethan Chapin and Madison Mogden. So, you know, these are the people that matter. And as you know, from the beginning of this episode, things are changing rapidly. Uh, by the time we ended up concluding this episode, things had already changed, meaning as far as what we knew as a public, there was more information released. I did give you some of that information. Again, it's changing rapidly and news is being released pretty quickly at the moment. So, Check it out wherever you get your news. Uh, again, thank you so much to Matt, and thank you so much to the listeners for listening this week. I wouldn't be here without you, and I promise you there will be more coverage on this case. Hoping to get some more guests to discuss uh, what is going to happen next. And again, you can follow me on Twitter if you want to know what's coming down the pike. And my username is at BillHuffman3. If you feel like donating to the show, you're more than welcome to with my Venmo username, and that's at Bill-Huffman-3. So again, thank you guys so much for tuning in to this week's special episode about the Idaho 4 and the arrest of one Brian Koberger and having professional insight from one Matthew Mangino. So again, many thanks to everyone who helped make this show possible, and as always, stay healthy and be safe. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Something is creeping. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 